From the lowest dungeon to the highest peak, we bring you a 20-year celebration of The Lord of the Rings. We smote the ruin of Fellowship of the Ring upon the mountainside, but that was not the end. We've been sent back until our task is done. This is My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, and we come back to you now at the turn of the tide. Not listening. Not listening. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. <laughs> and I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweeting. Today's episode is Of Herbs and Stewed Rabbits, where Gollum attempts to reconcile the stinker and slinker within, while Frodo and Sam become entangled in the war between Mordor and Gondor. But first, our spoiler warning. While the ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies haven't. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even the Hobbit films. In honor of today's episode, we decided it might be fun to talk about foods in Middle-earth, <laughs> both those that exist in our world and the fictional foods found in Arda. We discussed Limba spread specifically in our second Two Towers episode, but otherwise we really haven't dove into what is sustaining our companions. Much of the real-world food we see in these stories overlap with what we'd assume was available during the Middle Ages of our world. Bread, meat, eggs, ale, etc. We see the hobbits obsessing over gourds and shepherding pigs in the trilogy's opening moments, and stolen crops and shortcuts to mushrooms push forward our narrative early on. Certain foods, like pumpkins or tomatoes, weren't really present in Europe during the Middle Ages and came over following the exploration of the Americas. But Tolkien allowed it, I guess, <laughs> especially as tobacco, the lesser version of pipeweed, also originated as such. I'm going to read a quick little snippet from this chapter of The Two, uh, of the two Towers. Yes. <laughs> All hobbits, of course, can cook. For they begin to learn the art before their letters, which many never reach. But Sam was a good cook, even by hobbit reckoning, and he had done a good deal of the camp cooking on their travels when there was a chance. He still hopefully carried some of his gear in his pack. A small tinder box, two small shallow pans, the smaller fitting into the larger. Inside them a wooden spoon, a short two-pronged fork, and some skewers were stowed. And hidden at the bottom of the pack in a flat wooden box, a a dwindling treasure, some salt. But he needed a fire and other things besides. He thought for a bit while he took out his knife, cleaned and wetted it, and began to dress the rabbits. So in these stories, food very much functions as both a reminder of home, but as a way to actually transport you home. And I think it's very significant that even a lot of the discussion of the Lemba spread, especially in the films, is tied to a return journey home. Um, because I think food is one of the things that's supposed to give you that kind of, you know, they call it comfort food for <laughs> a reason. Um, it reminds you of home and a comfortable place to be. Yeah. And I mean, this is like... Um the kind of focal point of food uh, in in Middle Earth in Tolkien's writings. Uh, it food is not commonly remarked upon, or I should say, it is commonly remarked upon or frequently remarked upon. But when it is, it's not commonly done. Uh, so it's not done just for the sake of saying, "Oh, well, there was food here." Whenever food shows up uh, in Tolkien's writings, it's showing up for a reason. Uh, and as you rightly say, like it is this reminder of home, and it's it's this way to sort of 
keep home alive and present no matter where you are. And But I also think there's this kind of really interesting element to it, which is contrary to what I've just said about it not just being a way to, to add texture to an environment. It's about kind of revealing more um, about these various sort of characters and, and, and races that we come into contact with without having to explicitly say X, Y, and Z factor true. And I and I know this is kind of like, you know, in the world before world building became this kind of dumb uh, buzzword that people used to just mean like, why can't I have a Wikipedia like entry to answer like what color Luke Skywalker's mm-hmm. boxer shorts are or whatever. Like this is what the purpose of world building was. It was the 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 kind of like shorthand that that writers and, and artists could use to, to really build out uh, like a complexity of like story uh, and setting. Uh, without wasting hundreds and hundreds of pages. And of course, Tolkien himself is like an expert at that. Um, But I also think there is really something kind of unique and fascinating in the way that Tolkien does this, because, you know, in in the first instance, he himself was a veteran of uh, the First World War. And so was away, uh, was not just away from sort of the like home cooking and the kind of food that 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 you know was comfort and was home to him but on either side of that experience bookending that experience of the first world war was you know his sort of early life in the kind of colonial uh hinterlands uh you know he was he was born in the orange free state um and then his later life you know within the the sort of british metropole but living under rationing because of course between World War One briefly and World War Two, and then World War Two afterwards until clear until like the sixties. Um, rationing was a key part of of the British life, of British cultural life, and this sort of absence of the food that that made people think, yes, this is what uh, you know a happy, joyful, full life is. Um, was was kind of a hallmark of British culture. Like if you, you want more on that, I would actually recommend uh, Pink Floyd's The Wall because uh, I think that really gets into that kind of loss of culture there. And so the fact that he thinks to use food in the way that he does is, is saying as much about the the sort of world that he created as it is uh, about you know who he is as an author. Yeah, and I guess we can start talking a little bit about uh, the chapter itself or the chapter that was adapted for the scenes we're discussing (laughs) specifically today uh, of Herbs and Stewed Rabbits is that chapter name. Uh, Do you want to talk a little bit about the component, like the food components that go into this chapter and what they reflect in terms of the real world? Uh Yes. Uh, So obviously we've got in the title, we've got uh, Herbs, Stewed Rabbit, uh, and then in the in the, in the actual text, uh, not a movie invention, is potatoes. Uh, so you know, three key components here. Uh, the first of these, not the least of the um, them, is rabbits or conies, as Sam refers to them. Uh, rabbits are kind of interesting because they are like this the staple food uh, in for the the last uh, oh fuck having to do math on the fly like one thousand years or so of of English history. Uh, rabbits were like a really crucial kind of food in in the average person's diet. Um, they go through these like uh, phases of kind of popularity and luxuriousness. You know, there's there's even a period in, in sort of the middle the middle of the Middle Ages where rabbit is seen as a truly luxury aristocratic food. Uh, but then it kind of wanes in, in kind of prestige. And by the time you get to World War One, 
uh, which is certainly when Tolkien is aware and, and cooking for himself even, uh, maybe, uh, it's a workaday kind of food. Uh, and it's the kind of food that by, uh, certainly by the end of World War II, by the end of the 1950s and 1960s, people absolutely hated because they'd had to eat it constantly uh, because things like uh, like standard poultry or, or, or cattle, uh, you know, uh, horse and, and cow, weren't as plentiful and were in fact restricted by rationing. Uh, and so they had to replace most meat with rabbit. And so by the time you get around to the 1950s and 1960s, people hate it and there's no prestige left. Uh, and and as much as there is a sort of like overconsumption, I guess not in terms of numbers, but like psychic overconsumption of, of rabbits, uh, that was really kind of a return to form for for rabbit and in, in the kind of like culinary routine of England, certainly. Uh, and it really did form this like in, incredibly important uh, staple, staple meat, really. Um, one kind of quote I found as I was kind of digging a bit into the history, the history of wabbits, uh, was from, uh, the 19th century horticulturalist, I did that fake list, but now I'm paying for it, horticulturalist, uh, Alexander Shand, who remarked that rabbit as a food item was unfairly ignored by all except, quote, the poorer classes, uh, which is, of course, the sort of, uh, peri-industrial, uh, working classes mostly and, and, and rural uh, working classes. Uh, and this is kind of who, who Sam is meant to embody in this story. So a fitting quote there. Uh, then we have, of course, potatoes. Uh, and yes, you are totally right to highlight the fact that these are not a, a crop that would have been present in, uh, in, and certainly in Northwestern Europe, uh, prior to the Colombian exchange. Uh, but after that, they became the staple food uh, in Britain uh, and they are unfairly maligned and I'm going to like you know lean forward in my big old armchair and do my I'm looking seriously at the camera thing but potatoes fucking rock uh, and they're a gift from God you know I'm an atheist but they're a gift from God they're the most nutritionally dense food imaginable and this whole like anti-carb bullshit that got trendy in the 90s can go fucking do one because you will never in the world find a better food than a potato. It is nutritionally dense. It'll fill you up. It's dirt cheap. It's plentiful. Oh my God, if you've ever planted like potatoes in your garden, you know they will never go away. If if I believed that God was real, this, this starch, this vegetable would be the thing to prove to me that God loved humanity because the potato is that fucking good. Uh, so none of this dunking on the Brits for using potatoes and everything. They are right to do it. Yeah, I don't know if this is a direct British compliment I'm going to pay. It might technically be the Portuguese, but uh, potatoes were brought to India. They're not uh, Indian, you know, they're not available naturally in India. And some of the best Indian dishes are aloo, yeah. which I think many of you might know from Indian restaurants as like a potato dish. Aloo gobi mm. um, is a very common and popular dish. And um, Indian potato dishes rock. Yeah. Um, we wouldn't have uh, samosas are another uh, very famous potato dish or a fried crisp uh, potato empanada, essentially. So um, I do applaud the Europeans for bringing the potatoes over to the Far East as well. Um, as it was huge for our culinary palate as well. So um, I support you in this, and this is the only time I'll support um, the European colonial project in, <laughs> in one of its outcomes. It's bringing us potatoes. You heard it here, folks. This podcast endorses the British Raj. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm also now so hungry. All I can think about is how close my phone is to me so that I can order some Indian food for dinner. Uh, so this is going to be a great fun episode. 
<laughs> for me. Um, yeah, so that's potatoes. God bless them. Uh, the next one is actually the herbs, uh, of which we do actually get an accounting in the book. Um, I, I guess I kind of zoned out or just didn't really care to catalog this detail when I read the book the first million times. Um, but, but Sam does actually go into detail about the specific kinds of herbs that he wants Gollum to go get. And I thought that was kind of it was kind of funny. Uh, but the ones that he asked for are bay leaves, thyme, and sage. Um, bay leaves are interesting because they were kind of like the staple herb of ancient Greek cooking. Uh, but in the intervening years, in the intervening millennia, since the sort of height of, of the ancient Greek civilization, they bay leaves are pretty much the the uh, spice, you know, after salt and pepper and possibly paprika. Uh, and, you know, it is a bay leaf. Everybody from Britain to China, certainly on the like uh, uh, Indo-European, Asian, European. Why did I forget what the name of that continent was? Whatever. <laughs> this weird fucking continent that I live on uh, or don't even live on because I live in Britain. Whatever. This continent, uh, Northern Hellhole, everybody uses them. Uh, and so they have naturally been been sort of transmitted uh, well beyond that kind of uh, imperial core uh, to, to everyone. So pretty much everybody cooks with bay leaves at some point. Uh, so that's kind of fun. Uh, then you've got sage, which is actually like a woefully underutilized herb just now. I, I realized this as I was standing in the like uh, discount section of uh, our local uh, grocery store a couple weeks ago. And I was like, man, all the sage is marked down because no one buys it. It's a great herb uh, for anybody here who is also now as hungry as I am. Uh, so it was, you know, first and foremost, like a medicinal herb. Uh, the ancient Romans actually loved it, which is unsurprising, I guess, given uh, Italian food and, and, and the sort of not the modern Italian food like pizzas and pasta and shit, but the sort of stuff that can trace its heritage back to the, the height of the Roman Empire. Um, but everyone was obsessed with sage uh, at various points uh, throughout the pre-modern and early modern era. I think it was like uh, King Charles of England, I think, even kind of ran a school based around the like medicinal help the medicinal kind of powers of sage, uh, which is just a weird thing to come across when you're trying to like research this. Uh, and then the last but not the least of them is thyme, which is actually indigenous to the Levant. I, I think it's kind of the only one of these here. Well, okay, fine. I guess if you count Greece as the Levant, which you shouldn't, but if you could do, uh, <laughs> it could be that. Uh, the ancient Egyptians used it for embalming, uh, which is fun. I imagine the mummy smelled fucking banging. Um, and again, not a great thought when you're as hungry as I am. Uh, and then the Romans, uh, when doing their conquering... Uh, their uh, proto-British empire uh, proliferated time everywhere and everybody loved it for like uh, culinary and both culinary and medicinal reasons. It was actually one of the herbs that people used to stuff in their little masks during the uh, Black Plague. Um, and if you, like me, have been going through all of this uh, and have and have had the Simon and Garfunkel song Scarborough Fair in your head where it's like, you know, parsley, sage, rosemary and thyme, da da da. Uh, those four herbs, which are like three, two of which are mentioned here, uh, are herbs associated with death. Um, and that's mostly because of their like use, uh, employment as sort of mask herbs, uh, or, or salves, use in salves during the Black Death. Uh, and interesting to me, probably not intentional, but interesting to me that, that these are two of the herbs that, uh, Sam mentions here. There are also, of course, staple herbs of British cuisine, but interesting that Sam calls them out specifically when, you know, they're in this kind of land of the dead or land of the half dead that is Athelian. 
Yeah, thank you for actually uh, meaningfully tying in that Simon and Garfunkel, Garfunkel <laughs> song, because otherwise I would be forced to make a joke right now about it. That probably would be nowhere near as interesting. <laughs> so, um, Just to run down some of the like fictional foods that we've so far encountered uh, or will encounter during our coverage of various uh, Legendarium works, uh, Lemba spread, as we've mentioned a couple of times now, and also there's Cram. Mm. Uh, and these serve a very specific purpose, right, Emily? Yeah. So both of these are interesting. So the cram is like the Dale man's cram and it's like a, it's kind of a whey bread, a thick kind of bread meant for traveling, uh, used by the men of Dale or Esgroth. Um, what's really interesting about the two of these Lembus and cram alike is that it's about the kind of ritual of travel, um, and this expectation, you know, as you rightly should expect in, in a place like middle earth that you will be traveling for a long time. And so without the, the sort of, uh, proliferation of like salting and smoking to help preserve meats, you, you need bread. Um, and both cram and Lembus, uh, have these kind of interesting culture exchange moments because, uh, Lembus, as we kind of talked about in, one of the earlier Tutara's episodes has this rich tradition within and within sort of elvish culture uh, and within the 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 this book, uh, The Lord of the Rings, we see Galadriel kind of passing it on uh, as this kind of cultural exchange between herself uh, and and the elves of Lothlorien uh, with this sort of wider world. But Cram, uh, as as used by the men of Dale, actually has its own kind of rich tradition history of uh, sharing with the dwarves is Arabor. Uh, and, and this is kind of one of these key, key moments when food like this, simple, easy food that you wouldn't otherwise think about because it's effectively just a granola bar, um, is used to, to explain and to highlight this kind of, these points of cultural exchange between the various uh, cultures of uh, of Middle Earth of Tolkien's legendarium, and of course, there's this like lovely thing this 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 ritual of prepar- preparation, uh, the the sort of ritual of preparing and and putting sort of effort and love and work into these things that are meant to to go far away. You know, the people who make Dale cram and the people who make Lembus bread are not the people who are going to consume it. So they make it and send it far, far away from them. And they will never see the kind of fruits of their labor, not in the sort of like alienation sense, Mark's alienation sense, but in the sense that like, this is something that they are packing full of their love and their hope and sending it away from them in a kind of deeply like culinarily optimistic sense, I guess. Yeah, we'll, we'll say that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, in The Hobbit, we'll learn of Beorin's honey cakes, which um, I don't actually remember off the top of my head, but boy, honey cakes do oh, sound yeah. good right now. <laughs> um, and when we're in The Prancing Pony earlier in this story, we also get a description of their spread, which isn't fictional foods, but because it is uh, you know, a description, I'm going to read it here. Um, it is hot soup, cold meat, a blackberry tart, new loaves, slabs of butter, and half a ripe cheese. <laughs> Good plain food, as good as the Shire could grow. Yeah, so this is good because this is basically a, a plowman's lunch, a standard plowman's lunch, uh, minus the, the pickles, uh, which is really just kind of a classic English working man's lunch. Uh, even some of the things that are called out here, like the, the blackberries, uh, are things that are classically English. And so this is, you know, Tolkien being like, food obviously has a very crucial uh, role in, in developing what a culture is and and knowing that by including these things, these references, he's going to be able to evoke something uh, with like sort of far richer detail than if he'd just been like, imagine it's based off of England. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and then in terms of like some of the drinks we see in the world, um, we have our standard uh, fare of like ales, wine, tea, coffee, all seems to exist. Um, you know, the very opening with Gandalf and Bilbo is Bilbo offering him some wine um, and Gandalf saying just tea. Thank you. Uh, so there's that. There's Entraft, <laughs> which uh, we talked, I think, a little bit about with our Ent discussion, and it shows up in an extended edition scene. It's supposed to be very revitalizing. Uh, but uh, anything you want to add about the Entraft? Makes them bitches taller. Uh, yeah, Mary and yeah. Pippin oh, get yeah, to be like that. three foot tall, so good for them. It's the Got Milk campaign of Middle-Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's Miruver, which... Emily, please. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, oh, fuck, now I'm going to screw the pronunciation on this. Uh, Maravora, uh, which is okay. like the the, the Quenya uh, term used to talk about the flowers of, uh, the nectar of Yavanna's flowers, and Yavanna's sort of being the, the this kind of, the, um, <laughs> shit, the Vala associated with, like, uh, growth in nature and fertility. Uh, and so there, there's this kind of, uh, is it ambrosia? Is that it? Like, the nectar of the gods? I think this is what this is meant yes, to be. Yes, the one, That's yes. the one, uh, and then in Rivendell, uh, the uh, the elves of Rivendell serve a, a cordial, which is like uh, uh, it, fuck. It's called it's diluting juice here. Uh, I can't remember what it is, but it's basically a super concentrated drink that like you dilute with uh, something else, like water, sparkly water, or booze, or whatever, uh, to get like what it's actually meant to taste like. Uh, and the elves of Rivendell serve Miravor as a as a cordial, uh, and it's meant to have these sort of revitalizing powers. But really, let's be honest, it's just a, an excuse to drink fancy booze. <laughs> and lastly, we have Orc Drink. Um, I, I think that's the official name of it. It's just Orc Drink, yeah. like purple drink. <laughs> Um, but, uh, we see this, uh, I think it's actually in the extended editions as well, but, uh, when Mary and Pippin are taken, uh, hostage by the Urukai, um, to get Mary's strength up because, you know, he's kind of passed out at first and has that nasty head wound. Um, they give him orc drink, which kind of looks like rum or something or molasses the way the film depicts it. Um, and it's supposed to be kind of foul tasting, but actually invigorating, uh, which kind of goes against all the like video game RPG systems <laughs> I've ever used because orc drink would normally probably poison your character <laughs> um, in a standard game. But here it is actually revitalizing. It just it's foul, even though it has some um, fair qualities, so to say. <laughs> very good. Very, very good. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm just kind of imagining the like Middle Earth version of a conspiracy theorist, like self righteously going around on like Middle Earth Twitter being like, um, actually, it's not Kool Aid, it's Flavor Aid or whatever the equivalent would be for the Orc <laughs> drink. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I assume it would actually, in that case, literally be Pippin just fucking around. Uh, but there is. Um, yeah, I guess kind of to cap this all off, like one of the things that um, is really important to me about Tolkien's work um, is the kind of um, uh, the kind of continual reversion to the norm that is love. Um, like the, the the books are incredibly optimistic books, uh, even at their kind of like darkest and, uh, you know, grimmest. Uh, even the Silmarillion, I would say, which often gets maligned as grimdark, is, is a book um, fundamentally about the sort of love or absence of love. Uh, and I think that's actually something that, that's really lovely, <laughs> lovely, literally, <laughs> about Tolkien's writing. Uh, and I think uh, in that kind of shitty, uh, like, dollar store, dime store uh, poet sense, like, I'm going to post this shit on Instagram with, like, a picture of a girl lying on the beach or whatever and get a million likes. Uh, like, like ooh, the essence of kind of food uh, is love. Uh, and I think in some ways, like, 
one of the things that makes us human, and if you're an anthropologist, don't get up my ass on this, uh, but like one of the things that makes us human is the ability to cook. Uh, and it's also the kind of ability to, to love. Uh, and so there are these like, you know, abstract kind of rituals that we construct over, um, you know, the, the process of preparing food, the process of eating food, whether it's like sitting down as, uh, you know, standing up to cook together as friends or sitting down together to eat together as family. This whole idea of breaking bread and all of the things that we can teach, you know, our ourselves and, and one another through through the food that we eat. Um, one of the things I'm actually thinking about as I'm saying this is there's this brilliant documentary series on Netflix right now called uh, Tacos, I think. It's, it's literally just, just cut tacos. And it's not grating or annoying or that like epic bacon Reddit shit. Um, it is a really excellent look uh, at, at, you know, food that certainly for Americans is, is often kind of unfairly ignored. Uh, and it goes through and it looks at like the kind of long-term cultural uh, history of, of different types of tacos. And it talks to the people who actually make it and and who have like a kind of emotional investment in it. Um, and, and for me, when Tolkien goes out of his way to talk about food in The Legendarium, he's trying to evoke that feeling of like, not the kind of ancient tree of like, you know, the heroic figures, the Odysseuses, the Aragorns, whoever, but the kind of more humble ancient tree of like, you know, you sit down and you eat this meal and it's the same meal that your grandfather and their grandmothers and their grandfathers before them have prepared. And there's that sense of connection and that sense of like history. Uh, and, and of Herbs and Stewed Rabbit in particular is really interesting because it's this precursor in the book to... Uh, a huge amount of expositionary uh, history and to kind of set it all off with something so simple as Sam showing his love for Frodo by by making a stew, by making sure that they have good food to eat while they're doing this horrible thing, I think is very much peak Lord of the Rings. Listen to my voice. Do you hear my voice? This is the last time you are going to hear my voice sounding remotely sane for at least the next year. Enjoy. Welcome to Ithilien, or generic Gondor without buildings. Watch the beautiful local wildlife, Gollum, crawling on all fours through a shallow river, desperately chasing after a jumping fish. I have to say... I was in Basel, Switzerland recently, that is my humble brag of the episode, and they've got two rivers running through it. One is the Rhine and the other is the Beerus, and it was hot as balls when we were there, and we spent part of an afternoon down at the Beerus, which is very, very shallow at parts, like 15, 20 inches total, and it's got those nice, smooth, rocky bottom. And honest to God, as I was wading through it with my beer in hand, because God bless Europe, this scene fucking haunted me. It haunted me. All I could do was imagine myself as Gollum, and I'm to this day, still traumatized by it. I'm sure people around me were like, that chick looks like Gollum. And unfortunately, they'd have been right to think it. Anyways, <laughs> Gollum goes after the fish. 
Sam calls him stinker, to which Frodo gets inordinately offended. I'm actually offended on Sam's behalf here because both my mom and grandpa called me stinker as a kid, which I never took to be inherently insulting, but I will now be booking myself in for years of therapy. So Frodo and Sam have a brief discussion that unearths Frodo's real thoughts on this whole thing, only hinted at before now. Frodo, of course, feels a terrible sense of kindredship with Gollum. Gollum is not just alike to him. He is him. Gollum is Frodo's Christmas future, but unlike Ebenezer Scrooge, the deed necessary for redemption is far more complex than stop being a rich prick. Frodo has an outburst for which, to his credit, he does immediately apologize. I don't know why I said that, he says. I do. You can't take your eyes off it. I've seen you. You're not eating. You barely sleep. Say it. Vampire. Sam, dutiful project manager that he is, instructs Frodo in the obvious. You have to fight it. No shit, saith Frodo, who also reminds Sam that the ring was entrusted to him. It's his task. His own. His... Say the line, Bart! Nope, not getting it today. But we are getting closer. Now... For this film's pièce de résistance. Not to duck on Helm's Deep, but this two minutes is pound for pound the fucking apex of this film. Master's my friend. You don't have any friends. Nobody likes you. Wait, fuck. How did my morning meditations get in here? In all seriousness, Andy Serkis was robbed... And this scene, featuring Gollum arguing the small part of him that is still Smeagol, is one of those scenes that just stays with you. It's not just that we have all, at one point or another, been Gollum. It's that Smeagol does in fact get that moment we all long for. Master looks after us now. We don't need you. What? Leave now and never... second after Gollum disappears, leaving only Smeagol, is an enormous moment. You can see, for the most fleeting of seconds, the panic in Gollum's face. And who among us has not walked out on a beautiful spring morning, our heads full of song and the sunlight streaming down on our faces, only to wonder, but can I really be anything without my mental illness? But the moment is truly fleeting. Gollum understands that he needs to take his victories where he can get them. And so he celebrates. And as the audience, it's impossible for us to not celebrate with him, even for us repeat viewers who know in our bones that his story could never possibly have a happy ending. Gone, gone, gone! Smiggles free! 
Cut to the pale yellow light of Athelion and a lovely classical tableau. Frodo in repose, Samwise at watch, and Gollum, or Smeagol, dashing into it, rabbits in his maw. Here comes the feline behavior again as he dumps the dead bunnies in Frodo's lap. Yet, where some of us might think, dead bunny, do not eat, it's time for Ina Garten slash Sam Gamgee to proffer so crucial some culinary advice. There's really only one way to cook a brace of conies. I'll give you one guess as to what scene we're at here. What we need is a few good taters. What's taters, Brussels? What's taters, huh? Potatoes. Boil them, mash them, stick them in a stew. Lovely big golden chips with a nice piece of fried fish. <clears throat> Even you couldn't say no to that. Oh, yes, we could. Spoiling nice fish. Give it to us raw and wriggling. You keep nasty chips. Give it to us raw and wriggling indeed, Gollum. <laughs> Anyways, let me just check my ticket here. Ah, yes, that's right. Frodo goes off because he'll never fucking learn, and so too does Sam. And look, just in time to see a right military tattoo of wicked men, servants of Sauron, Men who, I swear, I promise, are dressed absolutely nothing like the sick caricatures of the people NATO was gearing up to invade for most of the 1980s and 90s. Ah, the 2000s. Also, check the motherfucking elephant troops. We're in the big leagues now, baby. The Dark One is gathering all armies to him, says Gollum. Golly gee whiz, what a dangerous land we're now in, lads. But oh, don't worry, it's time for a whole bunch of Link clones. Hey, can anyone spot Tingle? To pop out of the woods and rain the fires of hell down on these big, big baddies. Oh shit, looks like Frodo and Sam have gotten caught up in the Fuhrer and... Oh, hey, there's Tingle. There are no travelers in this land, only servants of the Dark Tower. To which I say, I am going to become the fucking Joker. So then Faramir says, Find their hands. Thereby launching a thousand fanfics. Well, folks, that's all for now. We'll see you next time for part two of my protracted nervous breakdown. Before them, as they turned west, gentle slopes ran down into dim hazes far below. All about them were small woods of resinous trees, fir and cedar and cypress, and other kinds unknown in the Shire, with wide glades among them. And everywhere there was a wealth of sweet-smelling herbs and shrubs. The long journey from Rivendell had brought them far south of their own land, but not until now is in this more sheltered region had the hobbits felt the change of climb. Here, spring was already busy about them. Fronds pierced moss and mold. Larches were green-fingered. Small flowers were opening in the turf. 
Birds were singing. Athelion, the Garden of Gondor now desolate, kept still a disheveled, dryad loveliness. I'm so sorry. I have to be totally insane. First off, holy shit, I'm so glad you're the one that's doing all of the book uh, like uh, snippets here because I'm like, yes, I f- am freed of this uh, burden of having to quote it. But also, that uh, the Garden of Gondor, now desolate, kept a still a disheveled dryad of lovely, kept still a dis- disheveled dryad loveliness. <laughs> oh, that was hard to do. Uh, that rhyming scheme, I-, I made a joke about this on Twitter, but then I went and looked it up uh, because I was certain that I was not wrong uh as i so often hubristically am uh, that rhyming scheme is the same rhyming scheme that's used in beowulf that alliter- not rhyming scheme the alliterative scheme Literation. that garden of mm-hmm. gondor and then desolate disheveled dryad that's straight out of beowulf so finally following uh, uh living up to my promise of everything in two towers is beowulf <laughs> Okay, I was about to be mad at Tolkien for his punctuation with all that, but if if he's doing a bit, I'm okay with it. <laughs> and he's clearly doing a bit here. <laughs> Our time today t- with Frodo, Sam, and Gollum takes place in Athelion, a regional go-between between Gondor and Mordor. It lies in between the Anduin to its west and the Ifilduath to its east. Athelion itself is bisected into north and south by the river Morgulduin, flowing out of the Mountains of Shadow and being toxic to drink. The river runs alongside the Morgul Road right by Minas Morgul, which will briefly glance from a distance in Return of the King. Where the Morgul Road runs east-west, the Harad Road leads north-south, and where they intersect by the river is known as the Crossroads. The movies get there near the start of the third film. The Window on the West, or Henneth Anun, is an important outpost held by the rangers of Gondor. We'll be there next time we see Frodo and Faramir and the rest, so we'll talk about that then. Athelion was shot at the northern end of Lake Wakatipu. It's the same area was used for Amon Hen scenes that rounded out Fellowship of the Ring. <laughs> <laughs> oh man all right athelian 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 uh i love athelian uh i think it is one of the most fascinating little regions of of uh of middle earth uh it's a constituent part of gondor it later becomes uh, a princedom uh, helmed by faramir although the appendices uh, lead us to believe that it's not actually Faramir who does the vast majority of the governing. It's actually Eowyn who does the, the vast majority of the governing. And wow, what a thing to include in the appendices. And I love Athelion. Um, that description up top, that beautiful, beautiful description up top that I, I love so much uh, is inspired directly by Tuscany. Uh, and we've got a couple letters from from Tolkien when he was traveling throughout the continent, uh, where he was passing through and, and even staying briefly in, in Florence and, and passing through Tuscany more generally. Uh, and he writes to his son Christopher to say that, like, this is his Athelion. Uh, and when he is writing about, you know, the, the cypress trees, which he name checks, um, he is imagining these country roads, these soft rolling hills and and the beautiful, beautiful sort of perfectly aligned forests of, of, of Tuscany. Uh, and he's imagining that sort of overgrown and, and no longer cared for and protected as as, as uh, Tuscany as a region has been since uh, solidly since the the uh, 10th century uh, and certainly preceding that. I just don't really give a fuck about anything pre uh, 10th century. 
And Ithilien in itself is is this really sort of magical place because it is the kind of height of of Tolkien's romantic setting, uh, and and not not just because it's the home uh, the seat of of the the House of Huron and Amon Arnon, which later becomes home to to Faramir and Eowyn, but also in the capital R romantic sense. Um, this is the place that it best embodies the kind of poeticness of, of the 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 sort of romantic genre. Um, in in the book, we get this kind of beautiful overlap of these decayed uh, ruins, uh, and this is true when we, when Sam and Frodo pass by the crossroads later in a couple chapters from now. Um, but it's this combination of of these these ancient buildings fallen out of use, fallen to disrepair, um, combined with the beautiful scenery, the beautiful uh, beautiful and beautifully described scenery. Um, and this is like you know this is peak romance. This is the stuff of Keats. This is the stuff of of Byron. To a lesser extent, he was not as fascinated by the sort of buildings in the same way that like Keats was. Um, this is the Samuel Coleridge stuff. Uh, and Athelian has its own sort of really fascinating political history that I will probably save for later. But like the kind of crucial thing is Athelian itself has only been depopulated for about 80, 90 years at this point. Um, you know, Tolkien fans online, which is to say like me and my five weirdo friends, uh, call it the Athelic clearances as sort of a reference to the Highland clearances uh, or clearances generally, I guess. But, you know, we're a bit celt-brained uh and uh in uh in uh the the sort of century preceding the action uh mount doom uh, ordrin uh bursts back into life uh and and because it's literally a volcano it's spewing ash and and shit everywhere like mount saint helens but worse uh and the people of athelian can no longer really countenance having to live in the shadow of mount doom and also having like kind of all these orcish incursions so they they leave and they go and become refugees and losernak and lebanon and lamadon and, and minister to a lesser extent. Uh, and, and one of the key kind of lordships in Athelion prior to this change is uh, the House of Huron and the Lords of Amon Arnon. And the House of Huron is named for uh, the, the steward Huron, uh, who was the first ruling, hereditary ruling steward of Gondor uh, and 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 uh, Faramir and Boromir and Denethor's ancestor uh, and the the Hurin the Hurinath uh, as they're kind of short term uh, ruled when they ruled in Athelion from Emin Arnon that was their their state and that is sort of smack dab in the central of Athelion south of the Morgulduin but but really a, a central sort of thing. Uh, and Athelion, of course, uh, means, I say of course, as if this is a thing that you should know, you shouldn't know this. Athelion comes from this Sindarin word for moon, Ithil, uh, and Ian, which is like a, like a, uh, like a geographic term, uh, meaning land of. So Athelion is the moonland, and on the other side of Minas Tirith, north of the, the White Mountains, north of the Ardenim race, we've got the, we've got the land of Anorian, and Anor means sun. Uh, and so you've got the, you know, the sunland handshaking the moonland. Uh, which is uh, Athelian, Anorian, and Athelian handshaking, and in the center of them you have either Minas Tirith or Asgiliath, depending on who you're asking and in what age. And of course, this corresponds to the the, the sons of the Lendil. You've got Anarian, uh, who ruled Gondor in his kingship, and Athelian, which stands in for Isildur, uh, and Isil is the Quenya name for moon, and, and Isildur took the northern kingdom. Uh, and there's just this incredible richness of history in Athelion and and I am fascinated and obsessed with it and and we are at long last here and I'm so fucking hyped. Yeah, that's why she teased she's going to slowly go insane over the next <laughs> uh, several months of uh, recording. So, you've been warned. <laughs> 
These scenes are the first time we see Sam and Frodo come to an outright altercation about Gollum after Sam calls him Stinker, which going back to uh, Emily being called Stinker by his grandparents, <laughs> I mostly heard the phrase in the context of uh, Looney Tunes cartoons, uh, which in the <laughs> 80s and 90s were mostly, I think, like the 40s uh, version of Looney Tunes cartoons we were seeing, at least the not overtly racist ones. Um but um, I, I'm just mostly familiar with Bugs Bunny saying, ain't I a stinker whenever he does some yeah. kind of one of his pranks or things like that. So I also didn't associate it necessarily as a derogatory term, but more as like a trickster or, you know, a prankster or something like that. So Sam in the books uh, more explicitly refers to Gollum's two halves as slinker and stinker. <laughs> and I'm sure you can figure out which one is supposed to be which. <laughs> Uh, Frodo has taken the pity of Gollum to heart, just as he's taken the ring close to his breast. He now sees himself in Gollum, or a future himself, possibly. Helping Gollum, helping Gollum becomes a way Frodo himself can hold on to hope, as the understanding settles in on him that he's probably making a one-way trip. I specifically like the line, what the ring is still doing to him about Gollum, as that scar or rift has not fully healed, and maybe even is getting worse. It portends Frodo's own struggles healing from the wound at Weathertop, a pain that lingers long beyond the defeat of the enemy. Yeah, um, so this thought of mine, this stupid thought of mine, has almost nothing to do with the movie. But I do wonder, like, in these moments, uh, because it's not just Frodo and Gollum who have had the ring, it's also Bilbo. Uh, and I'm kind of sitting here wondering, like, does Frodo ever think, you know, d like, does he ever reflect on Bilbo? And does he ever think that this is a possibility for Bilbo as well as him? And does he ever think that, you know, well, maybe there's some horribly optimistic version of this where it all ends up just like Bilbo or is he so like trapped rightly and justifiably trapped in like the kind of depths of his despair that the only options for him really are you know Gollum or death yeah I don't know about that um yeah but Bilbo's just built different <laughs> is uh the theory I'll go with <laughs> Frodo's pity disappears as he snaps back at Sam when he says Gollum can't be saved. Frodo apologizes almost immediately, and Sam does some exposition for us, telling us what the ring is doing to Frodo. I always linger on the quote-unquote you're bar barely eating line, which helps drives motivation for some stewed conies coming up. <laughs> it's doing the movie thing of playing up the rift between Sam and Frodo, and knowing where this all goes, Sam is pretty much right. But I think in this scene specifically, the Frodo Gollum overlap plays best, and Sam kind of looks to be in the wrong because this is the silliest and cutest Gollum looks <laughs> all trilogy, whether he's crawling after a fish or flashing the boys a big dumb smile. <laughs> so let's move on to the Gollum Smeagol two-hander. I want to discuss how this scene is set up first. Both Sam and Frodo are asleep, but Frodo's hand is tight on the ring. We see the silver chain disappear into his grip, but not the ring itself. The camera centers Frodo's fist without showing us the ring, but hits us with the one ring leitmotif, leitmotif as it zooms in, and Gollum's off-screen dialogue of, we wants it, starts to filter in. Just hitting you over the head with, the ring, the ring, as we're going to see the two see the two halves of Gollum fight over the ring. Um, sorry, I kind of stumbled that, but I'll just move on to my next point. <laughs> The Hobbit sleeping here also makes me think of the opening of Return of the King, where Gollum does another two-hander, this time into a 
watery reflection of himself, but doesn't realize that Sam wakes up this time. So Gollum kind of letting his guard down when the hobbits sleep is kind of a running thing. Yeah, it's also interesting because sleep ends up being like quite a motif, maybe incidentally in these films, certainly in the books. But like, you know, they talk about like the lidless eyes and the the sleep, sleepless darkness or whatever it is. Uh, And sleep is very much meant to be like a humanizing thing. Uh, And so it's a kind of never have Gollum sleeping, like not not only is just like literally exhausting, but is also kind of yet another way in which he's really set apart from the hobbits. And like, obviously, it's not until we learn in Return of the King or see uh, in Return of the King that, that Gollum really was a hobbit at one point. But man, the gulf between the two of them, the three of them, uh, is just so clear in these nighttime scenes when fuck Gollum go to sleep. <laughs> The camera zooms out to Gollum, and I really like how they set up the two sides of himself talking to himself. (laughs) He starts out spitting bile, that they should just take the ring from the hobbits and that they are false friends. This is, of course, the Gollum or Stinker persona, and there is naught but avarice and malice in his face, the way the eyebrows furrow and his face snarls. But then the camera pans right, Gollum closes his eyes for a minute, and when they open, that avarice is gone. They are kindly eyes, and the Smeagol persona comes in speaking lovingly of Master. The camera pans back left again, and the Gollum persona once again takes over. With these camera movements, the film has oriented us to the two sides of Gollum, facing the opposite way so the audience can tell which side is speaking, aside from the performance, which also bangs here. From now on, the camera no longer pans, but just cuts between the two halves, as if it was a regular two-hander between characters with shot-reverse shot, but also like a mirror as we see the other reflected half of this creature. The slam cut to Gollum teasing Smeagol, you don't have any friends, always gets a laugh out of me, because it's goofy Gollum face, it's just great. And also, noting that this is 2002 CGI, I love all the details in Gollum's face that you get a clear look at here. The blemishes on his cheek, the wrinkles around his eyes, his eyebrows, the way his hair lightly blows in the wind, it's all very excellently rendered. Props to Andy Serkis here too, giving us two distinct line deliveries and physical performances for Gollum and Schmeagol, so that even if the camera didn't clearly set up what was happening here, Circus still makes the point. Yep. I mean, it's just such fantastic acting. I, I almost kind of want to see a version where the flips are undone uh, and and kind of just see if it holds up still as obviously differentiated between Gollum and Smeagol when you don't have the camera helping it out. Because maybe, maybe I'm flying a bit too close to the sun here, but I think it probably would. Like, I think the physicality of Gollum is so different from the physicality of Smeagol that you could have probably, they probably could have done without the, the camera flip flop in there. I'm going to wade into this next point carefully because the way this adaptation handles Gollum, he does have a very solid arc in this film. I say carefully because right now in 2022, we have a cultural obsession with the quote-unquote character (laughs) arc analysis that's become rote in critical spheres and more importantly in lesser IP storytelling. I see this obsession making sure that quote-unquote every character has to have an arc that's ended up being deleterious to the characters in question. I'm specifically thinking about Obi-Wan in the new Kenobi show or Falcon and the Winter Soldier in Falcon and the Winter Soldier. (laughs) The film's 
could have just let Gollum be a little freak and had Sam and Frodo arguing about him as the main conflict, but we additionally get to see Smeagol wrestle with his worst half and for a brief time come out on top. Frodo gave Smeagol some hope, reminded him about his former, former self, and Smeagol took it to heart. He made a profound attempt to confront his inner self, and after seemingly winning, he goes out and kills some bunnies for Frodo and Sam. <laughs> Watching this W for Smeagol, I think, makes his perceived betrayal at the hands of Frodo when in Faramir's hand hurt all that more. We know Frodo truly was trying to protect Smeagol, but it's also clear why Gollum would perceive it as he did, and then Circus again kills it when he sees Gollum top Smeagol in the Henneth Annan scene we'll talk about probably next time we return to these characters. Gonna quote George R.R. R. Martin here, who is quoting Faulkner in saying that the human heart in conflict with itself is the thing worth writing about, and we get to see a very literal example of this in this scene. And not saying that the books don't have complexity for Gollum, just that the specific arrangement and adaptation of Gollum makes all this a bit clearer and neater and made for mass audiences in a fairly smart way. The context of him getting the rabbits for stew is a little bit different in the books, which I'm just flagging now in case we don't get to it later. Yeah, I mean, I rag on these movies a lot for having like bad narrative ideology. Um, and I think this is actually one instance in which they are very clearly better than Tolkien. Um, like, I think their kind of whole fetishization of like, quote unquote, normal people. Uh, and here's where we queue up the we're just normal men bit. Um, like, I think that's kind of bad vis-a-vis -vis, like Rohan and Gondor. But this is where it really works. Like, Tolkien's kind of inclined to have pity for Gollum, but he doesn't really see him as this like fully realized being uh, kind of like this classic British upper class looking down at the pavos being like, oh, I feel pitiable for them, but they're just these fucking creatures. They're not people like me. Uh, and the filmmakers and Andy Serkis in particular definitely don't take that tack uh, with dealing with Gollum. Uh, and I think that is really to the, these films sort of overall benefit is that they really take Gollum seriously as, as a character and not just at an inflection point for Frodo. So last time we were with Frodo and Sam, we met the Easterlings as they marched into Mordor. We expand our view of men even more now with our first glimpses of the Herodream. You're going to find some of our Orientalist analysis of the Easterlings will broadly also apply here. Emily will give us the real-world analogs Tolkien was going for with the Harad, but in these films they definitely give South Asian vibes to me, or maybe it's just because I'm South Asian. To that effect, I generally like how they are depicted here in the Two Towers, and less so in Return of the King, the latter in which they look like Dalsim from Street Fighter or the Persians <laughs> in 3000, or 300 rather, which was not out at this point, that was still a few years away. That is to say, the Return of the King ones look even more racist to me, even though I'm super into Oliphants generally and the whole battle at the Pelennor Fields. Here in this film, the Herodrim we see are depicted as 12th century Saracens, that is to say Middle Eastern Muslims from medieval times. They are generally shown in maroon and black robes, turbans, and black scarves covering the lower half of their faces. You can see gold armor plating on several of them, and repeating diamond patterns on them is evocative of Muslim or Mughal designs. They are shown brandishing spears and pikes and halberds and bows. When I say I think these guys are less racist than the Return of the King depiction, 
it's probably mostly because it looks like a bunch of white guys underneath all that costuming, <laughs> which may be its own separate problem, but whatever, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Uh, I, I think that's a reasonable kind of uh, concession there. Uh, yeah, so this one's weird. This one's just weird and difficult because I think because of these films, the hard dream have kind of popularly in the fan and become associated with like Arabs uh, or Persians. Uh, and it's not actually what Tolkien was going for. And now this, as with the orcs, as with the, the Easterlings, uh, what Tolkien was going for certainly does not make this whole affair much better. It's still fucking racist. Uh, but, uh, but Tolkien was going for Ethiopians, uh, with the hard dream. Uh, and in particular, he, he wrote, he penned an essay about, uh, an Anglo-Saxon word, uh, that effectively translated to, to Ethiopian, uh, because there was this Anglo-Saxon contact with someone from Ethiopia and this creation of the word. And, and, and he goes into this long analysis of it, but he was fascinated by this. And I think racism, I hate to say this, but racism aside, it is a fascinating point of cultural contact. We don't much imagine the Ethiopian or the rather the Anglo-Saxons having any contact with the Ethiopians, particularly given that like the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms were just a fucking backwater shithole uh, for the the kind of bulk of their their history, whereas Ethiopia in particular uh, played uh, uh, home to some of the the like greatest and and kind of wealthiest empires in human history. So we don't really think of them kind of trifling with the the fucking backwater hicks that are the English or the proto-English. Um, but Tolkien was obsessed with them uh, and uh, wrote in Harad. Generally, Harad just means South uh, and the higher dream in particular to kind of represent Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, you could probably make the shitty argument that like, well, Africa's Africa and the Maghreb is Arab. So this depiction's actually fine. I don't really go for that. I don't think that's, that's right. I think this is another kind of instance in which the film uh, could have taken some like heinous racism that Tolkien did and expanded on it in like a quite an interesting way by like on like surfacing the the really uh, fascinating like artistic and cultural heritage of Ethiopia, pre-modern Ethiopia and certainly pre-Italian fucking influence Ethiopia uh, to do something really interesting with the characters or the the kind of race portrayed here. And instead just was like, we'll we'll do an even lazier version of racism. Uh, but yeah, uh, Harad, Ethiopia, Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, really interesting essay that Tolkien penned on it. I think that about covers it. So Herod, Herod Dream is Sindarin for the South people, which you guessed it. They are from the land south of Gondor and Mordor, known as Harad. We'll get into their relevant like history in-universe in the Tolkien Tolkien book section. The highlight of the Haradrim are the Oliphants, though not of the Timothy kind. They are essentially elephants from our real world, though in the films they are depicted with four tusks, I'm seeing double here, <laughs> for that little extra visual oomph. The films modeled them after the Stegotetrabelodon, hey! an extinct type of elephant. In world, they are also known as the Mumakil. Anything you got on the entomology or the names here? Yeah, so this is fun. Um, I'm actually, I was like totally misled for a long time about the linguistic origin of the word mumakil. Uh, so mumak is the singular, mumakil is the plural, and it's got the little circumflex, I don't know what it, the hat, carrot, whatever, carrot top on the eye. And that for me, I don't know why, because this is wrong, and there's just absolutely nothing to indicate this to my bad brain except for my own like hubris. For some reason, I was like, oh, that's kind of like Cinderin-esque. 
Oh, you know what it is? It's actually Hannah Thannon. Hannah Thannon uh, has the the circumflex uh, above mm-hmm. the U. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's fine. I am actually justified. So it's like, okay, fine. It's Sindarin. Uh, and then it isn't. It isn't actually Sindarin. It's a Harati word, uh, which is interesting for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, first is that Tolkien doesn't really go out of his way to like build out a Harati language, uh, which I know because I've been trying to figure out how to do that and have had to be like, fuck it, it's Basque now, uh, because Tolkien said absolutely nothing on it. Uh, but the fact that there's this cultural overlap with Gondor, because we know that the men of Gondor refer to the, the Oliphants as Mumikel, uh, says that, that that cultural kind of overlap, even a thousand years or so after their kind of split, is still relevant and is still there. That's really interesting. That's a phenomenal little bit of linguistic history that Tolkien snuck in there. Um, the actual Sindarin term for Oliphants is Anaban, which means uh, long snout. Uh, and I think kind of one of the kind of really fascinating bits here that we might get into later in an entirely different episode is uh, in uh, Faramir's accounting uh, in the subsequent chapter of the history of Gondor uh, and its successes and failures and, and the successes and relative successes and failures of the kings versus the stewards. He talks about how the stewards were uh, more successful than the kings of Gondor because they integrated the middlemen and the middle and low men who dwelled within uh, within the, the sort of territory of Gondor, the boundaries of Gondor. Uh, and this, this linguistic crossover, this this utilization of Mumakil uh, seems to kind of give a... Uh, give speed to to that assertion of Faramir's that like yes the stewards did actually uh integrate these people and and there's clear evidence of this integration by virtue of the fact that it is not the Sindarin word that is that is privileged uh in the speech of the men of Gondor it's actually the the Haradric uh word and that's that fucking rocks I think uh so yes uh Mumikil, there we are so Oliphants offer the military tactical advantage of building giant towers on top of these uh, creatures that can be outfitted with dozens of archers or spearmen, as we'll see in the films. The Mumakil themselves have extremely tough skin, making them resilient in battle. Their eyes are considered weak spots. Um, and then specifically, a line of elephants can be a t- tactical advantage against traditional cavalry, which again, we'll see play out in Return of the King. Yeah, and so this like strategic kind of benefit from the, I, I guess we'll use the kind of overly academic term technology here of the Mumikil, uh is really interesting um, because it reinforces an argument made in the books and slightly less so in the films, which is that like the anti-Sauron forces, or in other words, the good guys, have gotten so complacent and obsessed with wallowing in their own pessimism and grief that they haven't actually prepared themselves for the fight. Uh, and, and they haven't really thought in advance of how the fuck to handle all of these kind of devices and weapons of the enemy. Uh, like, if you get back to the central plot of, of the, this story, which is this Hail Mary to destroy the, the ring, you know, that's our first kind of clue that these guys are not really uh, thinking strategically. They're not really playing this game as they should be playing it. And this is just kind of another little piece of evidence to support that thesis, which is like, why the fuck haven't these people who are allegedly technologically superior, morally superior, whatever, to the higher dream, why haven't they figured out how to like dismount and deal with the elephants? Because the elephants are meant to be this kind of primitive cavalry force, this primitive siege weapon. Why have the high and mighty god dream not gotten so far as to think about how to handle that? Like, what a massive cell phone. Um, and elephants or war elephants have been a big part of modern fantasy tradition, um, from the elephants we see here to things like Warhammer and, of course, A Song of Ice <laughs> and Fire. 
So a fake, a series of fake bird call catches Frodo and later Sam's attention, which leads them to the Haradrim army we just discussed above. But another one of these bird calls scares Gollum off, which is kind of a hint to us that Gollum suspects something is coming, as is Howard Shore's ominous score coming in at this moment. I love how this attack on the Haradrim starts out, as it's mostly from Sam and Frodo's point of view. Gollum slinking away is followed by several whooshes. We hear the arrows before our minds can even register what is happening before we start to see them rain down on the Haradrim. Yeah, um, I love those bird calls a whole hell of a lot. Uh, and it's really brilliant. I'm going to call it subtle, but here's the thing. I'm a big old dumb dumb dummy uh because maybe the first one million times i saw this movie i did not pick up <laughs> the bird calls i just thought they were upset birds that were flying away from the elephants and it wasn't until i got a version with the subs on and it was like ranger bird call and i was like fucking what bird call ranger bird call <laughs> and then it hit uh it landed to me that that is not a scared tweety bird <laughs> running away from an elephant <laughs> so there's that um, I, it, that does have some basis in the text, though, right? Yeah. I feel like um, they say um, he heard a bird call, but it was clearly not a bird yeah. uh, making the call or something like <laughs> they, that. Okay. They sure do. Um, I'm just really dumb. I would not have survived this quest at all. At this point, my um, threshold for subtlety in blockbuster cinema is, does a character actively say the thing is the thing? <laughs> they, um, they bird they call don't now? don't say it, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they bird call now, oh gosh. <laughs> Uh, we cut back to Frodo and Sam, who are frantically looking around to figure out what's going on. The camera returns to the Herodream being killed, and you can get a taste of Peter Jackson's horror background here with some of the slam zooms as the <laughs> Sothrons fall. Eventually, we get glimpses of the archers, but not much. Just a hand and a bow from behind a tree, hooded figures here or there, and then eventually Faramir's face as he takes down one of the Oliphant riders. It's a really effective way to stage a guerrilla attack with just hints to the audience something is coming and, and the attacks starting and ending so quickly that we have to piece together what's happening. Yeah, it's brilliant. Um, I lament occasionally, mostly to myself, because I realize how it sounds to other people, uh, that this that these films didn't take more cues from like Vietnam War movies. Uh, and this is actually an instance in which I'm kind of glad that they didn't, because I think if they tried to go full VC with this, it would have ended up not great. Whereas this is like, you know, it's a bit more whack-a-mole style, uh, and it works mm -hmm. really, really effectively. Uh, and I think this kind of, and again, this might just be me not being able to see for shit, but like, you really can't tell or see what's going on. And it's really hard to like discern the Rangers from the, the brush around them. That's really effective. And I do, and I do think like, I'm kind of anti-immersion in some ways. Um, but I think it is a really good way of kind of immersing the audience in the, the kind of uproar of battle and really reflecting, I think quite well, the, the cadence and the kind of like style of the prose in the corresponding chapter. Yeah, because you really do see the Herod Dream kind of scrambling and falling before you can even really tell they're being attacked, yeah. um, which I really like because I feel like now there would just be a dramatic, like it would cut to Faramir and you'd hear him say fire and then, you know, <laughs> we would see the beginning of the attack. And I just feel like this, and it really helps center that we're seeing it from Sam and Frodo's point of view, yeah. um, which is what the film is trying to do. The film, as we'll discuss in many coming episodes, doesn't care that much about Faramir and the rest of Gondor. <laughs> Um, but they do care about Sam and Frodo and making sure we're in their shoes for much of this trip. 
Uh, speaking of Sam and Frodo, they are captured almost immediately afterwards, though I do like Sam drawing his sword to try and rescue Frodo, who's thrown down first. Faramir pops in to say, bind their hands, and that scene. Obviously, Faramir is a pretty big deal for us to discuss, and some of us in this pod, you know, have some issues regarding that character. <laughs> Won't say who. Be that as it may, we will dive deeper into him in both the Window on the West episode, as well as a dedicated Faramir Eowyn character episode we have coming up in our Two Towers coverage. Oh, hey, shagging lots. Uh, yes, uh, I am really actually going to restrain myself here. The one thing I want to say is everybody start your timers now for how long it takes me to say something about Faramir in the movies that can actually get this podcast canceled. <laughs> and also there is a little more meat to the scene in the extended edition with Faramir getting some fairly iconic Sam lines to deliver. Um, instead of going over those, I'll just remind everyone that if you sub our Patreon, patreon.com slash my bro, my cat, my pod. Um, we will do an uh, I- episode on the extended edition scenes if we reach 100 patrons. God, I'm, it's been so long since I've had to plug the Patreon. <laughs> I don't know how to do it anymore. As Sam and Frodo head south from the Moranin and into Athelion, they speak of the silent watchers and sleepless eyes that seem to be watching them from the borders of Mordor. We see similar things occur both around Minas Morgul and Kirith Ungol later on. Often described as red eyes, they seem like fires and watchtowers that have some omnipresence or vision of all that moves adjacent to the Dark Lands, a fitting extension of the great eye symbolism and metaphor. Me, personally, think there's a specific homage to all this in FromSoft's latest game, Elden Ring, (laughs) in the region of Lierna on your way to the Great Lift, which takes you to the Atlas Plateau. You don't have to commit any of that to memory. (laughs) In this area, there is a hill which, if you start climbing up, your character will start to be poisoned by the Frenzied Flame, a madness status ailment that can kill the player. It turns out there is a tower atop the hill where frenzied flame worshippers are conjuring a giant fiery eye and anyone within line of sight of the tower will be overcome by this flame. <laughs> Enemies in the area are also uh, overcome by this frenzied flame, but they don't die. They just attack you with even more frenzy, I guess. So to navigate this area, the player has to work between cover to stay out of the tower's line of sight. And then you can eventually approach the tower from the rear and put out the frenzied flame. All right. This is it. This is the rest of my evening set. Thanks to this podcast, I'm going to order a shit ton of Indian food and play Elden Ring for the rest of the evening. Brilliant. Yes. That's basically what I do every day. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, lordy. Okay. Uh, History time. What I really should have done is like gone and done some jumping jacks to like get my, what is it, your diaphragm or whatever. Uh, Whatever. Uh, Harad time. Let's do it. So. After the men, uh, the menfolk, awoke in Hildorian in the east at the very dawn of the ages of men, uh, many groups of the men began to move west. Some went all the way west, uh, the uttermost west, well, not quite the uttermost west, but pretty fucking close to the uttermost west, which we've detailed here in this podcast before and will continue to do ad nauseum because these are my fuckers. These are the Numenorians. Some of these men didn't actually make it very far at all and chose to settle in the south of Middle-earth, which prior to the sinking of Beleriand was quite a bit bigger, uh, and this is the region known in Sindarin as Harad. 
In the Second Age, the men of Numenor began to do some light, totally not fucked up, I'm sure, colonialism, and settled the coast of Harad. They apparently uh, brought many benefits to the people who dwelt there, including agricultural and crafting innovations, lest we forget that even for a second, that Tolkien was very much a byproduct of the British Empire. Nevertheless, in the reign of Tar Kiryatan, one of the kings of Numenor, the Numenorean men set themselves up as proper little lords in Middle-earth and began demanding tribute from the people who lived in those lands. Even Tolkien, it seems, could not lie that the Numenorians majorly oppressed the higher dream. In this age, Sauron basically let it happen unchallenged because he didn't have the power to oppose the Numenorians. But after the forging of the Rings of Power, God, I'm sorry, I realized that I just slipped into awful, like, fucking gamer YouTuber voice there, uh, where they're, like, <laughs> saying insane shit about Breath of the Wild, and you're meant to think they're smart. I'm gonna undo all of that. Uh, Sauron tries to go after the Numenorians after the Rings of Power. Uh, he begins to attack the Harati coast and excises the Numenorian settlers. Woke anti-imperialist king Sauron. Um, later, it's actually in Umbar, uh, which is the city of the Corsairs, that are Farazun, the last king of Numenor, usurper of the title from Tarimiriel, uh, captured Sauron. Uh, Sauron obviously put his hands up because he had a wider plan, uh, and this is the event that later led to the seduction of our Farazun by the Dark Lord and the total destruction of Numenor, cue Faramir's tears in the distance. So, the Numenorians who remained in Harad thereafter, and of course survived the foundering of Westerness, came to be known as Black Numenorians. Don't think too hard about that one. They fought against the alliance of the men and elves in the War of the Last Alliance, and try saying that ten times quicker, it's fucking impossible. The kings of Gondor subsequently spent a decent amount of time fucking with Harad to varying levels of success. Some of them did very, very well. Some of them mm, humiliated themselves, uh, and it was a thing that altogether stopped uh, during the Age of the Stewards, bar one notable example, which we will chat about in a couple minutes. So, sometime after the year 1250 of the Third Age, Vermendasil, who was the 19th king of Gondor, sent his son Valakar north to act as an emissary to the king of Rovanian. The king of Rovanian was what could be generously called a tenuous title. The Northmen had rarely had permanent settlements and tended to have smaller nomadic groups rather than a singular kingdom. This is the region that mostly encompasses everything south of Forad Waith in the very, very far north, which is the equivalent of the Arctic, Antarctic, Arctic, whatever the fuck it is, uh, to effectively Rohan. So, nevertheless, one prince, the Dugavia, had taken to calling himself the king of Ravanian, and after the substantial aid he supplied to Gondor in her fight against the Easterlings, this is the Wayne Riders, these are the fuckers with the chariots, um, his claim could not be like so casually discarded. Obviously, you don't want to piss off the guy who's just helped you beat some enemies who were making fools of you. So, Valakar was sent north, and therefore met, shagged, and wed uh, maybe reverse the order there, Vidigavia's daughter, Vidumavi, <laughs> who bore him a son named Eldakar. So, theoretically, no problem, except that the Northmen had never traveled to Numenor, did not participate in the war against Morgoth, and were therefore not availed by the Valar of a longer lifespan. Upon Valakar's return to Gondor and his ascension to the throne, there was a whole bunch of worry about the lesser blood status of his wife and son, and fear that the lengthened lifespan of the kings of Gondor would be lessened by this blood mixing. Yup, this is it. These are the good guys. So, when Valakar dies and Eldakar prepares to take the throne, there's a full-blown civil war. This is called the Kinstrife. 
Eldakar, who dwelt in the not-ruined city of Osgiliath, was chased out of the city and the kingdom and fled to Rovanion, and a man named Castamir took the throne and executed Eldakar's son. Eventually, Eldakar did retake control of Gondor and had Castamir put to death, but Castamir's son successfully fled to Umbar, making that city a safe haven for all enemies of the king of for the kings of Gondor. Uh, Umbar is along the Harati coast. By 2885 of the Third Age, Umbar, though ostensibly an independent city-state, supported Harad's claim over the Gondorian realm of Harandor, which is the little bit of like southern land, uh, land south of Ithilien. Uh, and it had at one point been named as a land of their dual claim between Gondor and Anbar. This, combined with the other military allegiances between the Corsairs and the Hired Dream, suggests an especially close relationship between effectively the guys who are the, the Corsairs who are the pirates and the Hired Dream who are the cool fuckers with elephants. Uh, and any extant divisions would have certainly been even more blurred by the time Sauron claimed dominion over them both. What's crucial about all of this history, most of it being fucking wild, and I really can't believe that Tolkien was like, this is a good idea, commit this to paper, is the Hard Dream were, uh, God, there's no way to like talk about this in a normal way, uh, a mestizo race, effectively, between the Numenorean settlers who forcibly colonized them and these men who had never gone to the West. Uh, there's this weird moral component because the the, the Numenorean colonizers uh, were the ones who bowed first to Sauron and the, the other sort of Harati men also kind of bowed to Sauron, but it's in Tolkien's imagining of it. It's worse because the good guys did it. Again, don't think too hard on that. The, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, the Haradrim have a fully legitimate bitch with Gondor because Gondor proudly declares itself the the heirs to the legacy of Numenor and Numenor obviously fucked uh, Harad seven ways to Sunday uh, and stole all of their land so fair enough that the higher dream want to go after them uh, I would also probably align with Darth Vader in a metal mask uh, if he was like let's fuck up the colonizers so there's that uh, and uh, the other kind of crucial element here is that the the kind of divisions that seem really strong between the Hard Dream and the Gondorim in terms of culture are not that strong at all. Uh, there is actually a significant amount of overlap. It tends to, Harad in general, but Umbar in particular, uh, it tends to be a kind of haven for the Gondorim who can't like behave nicely and get chased out. Uh, so it's kind of like what people would have imagined New York in the 80s to have been, uh, but in uh, much hotter digs. So, you know, make it that what you will. Uh, and I think that basically covers Harad in general, as I said up top, not up top, but earlier in the episode, they're based on Ethiopia, sub-Saharan Africans, not generic Jake Gyllenhaal looking ass fucking Arabs. Uh, so not sure where that one got pulled from, except for the rah-rah, let's invade Iraq shit. Uh, and I think that's it. I think that's it. I'm obsessed with these guys right now. So brace yourselves for way more chat uh, in the coming months. Yeah, we'll... Probably talk about them a little bit in our Rings of Power coverage, and also we might even do some special episodes about them, so uh, stay tuned on that. We will end this episode on a couple lighter notes. First, I'm going to read this quote from the text, <laughs> which is an ode to all the Sam and Frodo shippers out there. This is from Sam's point of view, by the way. He saw his master's face very clearly, and his hands, too, lying at rest on the ground beside him. He was reminded suddenly of Frodo as he had lain, asleep in the house of Elrond, after his deadly wound. Then, as he had kept watch, Sam had noticed that at times a light seemed to be shining faintly within, 
but now the light was even clearer and stronger. Frodo's face was peaceful. The marks of fear and care had left it, but it looked old, old and beautiful, as if the chiseling of the shaping ears was now revealed in many fine lines that had not before been hidden, though the identity of the face was not changed. Not that Sam Gamgee put it that way. I love him. He's like that, and sometimes it shines through, somehow. But I love him, whether or no. (laughs) And if that isn't enough for you, we have a song to finish this episode with, which me and Emily very astutely did not discuss who was going (laughs) to sing or how. Fuck. Gray as a mouse, big as a house. Nose like a snake, I make the earth shake. As I tramp through the grass, trees ca- Fuck. (laughs) Shit. I'm just gonna go. (laughs) Fuck. Okay. As I tramp through the grass, trees crack as I pass. With horns in my mouth, I walk in the south. Flapping big ears, beyond count of years. I stump round and round, never lie on the ground. Not even to die. Oliphant am I, biggest of all, huge old and tall. If you'd ever met me, you wouldn't ne- you wouldn't forget me. If you never do, you won't think I'm true. But old Oliphant am I, and I never lie. Which is a little uh, ditty that Sam wrote, I think, off the top of his head? Or was it something he was recalling? Uh, I think he did it off the top of his head. Yeah, D- DJ Sam, uh, we've discussed possibly doing a Patreon episode where we do the Tolkien songs in Beastie Boys rhyme. <laughs> Um, and I think this song might be like peak for that. So you might get an even better uh, rendition oh, later on. <laughs> that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com and mybromycatmypod on Twitter. You can support this podcast by signing up for our Patreon at patreon.com. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find me covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sans Frontiers and A Song of Ice and Fire and House of the Dragon over at the Nauticast ASOIAF podcast. Woo-hoo. And I've been Emily, also known as JR Tweeting, where you can find me on Twitter giving it and wriggling. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. The highlight of the horror dream are the elephants, though not of the Timothy kind. <laughs> or sorry, wait, I, I butchered that. Let me start that over. The highlight of the horror... I can't believe I did that. The highlight of the horror dream are the oliphants, though not of the Timothy kind. <laughs> <laughs>